Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Sometimes there really is power in the prequels. That's episode 277 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. If you had a chance to check out the first couple of episodes of Pennyworth on Epics, of course, that follows Alfred Pennyworth, Batman's butler before he bottled, of course. So we're going to be talking to the cast and the producers of Pennyworth this week. Got to sit down with them at San Diego Comic-Con this past year so you can learn even more about the new DC Comics show on Epics. Also, speaking of DC, going to give my spoiler-filled review of the Batman Hush movie. Yeah, I decided to talk about Hush this week because, well, there's quite frankly a lot to talk about and a lot to say, so we'll get to that. We also have a brand new sponsor on the show this week. Can't wait to talk to you about Mac Weldon and all the great things that they have to offer. But first, of course, going to talk about some great comics. As a matter of fact, we'll start with DC and what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm writer Dan Waters, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hit the our power button on the tablet or the laptop, or you can slide the cover off the old long box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and it's Jaro forever, as far as I'm concerned. And that's Justice League number 29 from DC Comics this week. Don't worry, I'll get to why if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Scott Snyder and James Tin in the fourth on the writing here. Br- Bruno Redondo on the art. Hi-Fi with the colors. Tom Napolitano on the letters. Francis Menapool on the cover. Now, this is the Justice Doom War prelude. I mean, it's it's really happening imminently, and that is, that means a lot of Starro and Jaro, quite frankly, and that's taking center stage. Now, if you're saying, if you maybe you've seen it on social media, like, what the hell is this Jaro thing? What's going on? Don't worry, this book actually kind of explains all of that. If you don't know anything about Jaro's story, it breaks it down for you. As a matter of fact, there's kind of like a quick recap of Dark Knight's Metal and No Justice and stuff like that, too. So this book actually does kind of catch you up on everything that's happened up to this point. It's like previously on Batman, you know, where they tell you what happened in the last episode of the Batman Adam West show. This is exactly what's happening right here in this issue. You get some of that in these pages, but it's not all recap stuff. There's there's some there's a lot of stuff going on here as well. As a matter of fact, what's great about Jaro is that he's hilarious, but at the same time, he he's kind of a fearless badass. Tune. We get to see that a couple times in this issue. There's one page in particular where I was like, what the hell? And it was really cool. But that that's only part of the story because it's not all fun and games. There's actually something else really horrible that was part of the whole Dark Knight's Metal storyline in the, in the background that we didn't really know was going on. And there's another Starro, and it's not the best. Let's put it that way. It's pretty damn scary, especially if you know what Starro can do, and then you combine it with that, and it's it's crazy. Now, he does something in this issue, though, that no one's been able to do up to this point, and it's pretty great. Or is it? Because then you, then you read on, and maybe everything is not as it seems, and Jaro knows spoilers, too, by the way. Even if Jaro hasn't watched something, Jaro could spoil it for you. So you, you never want to be around Jaro 
if you're avoiding spoilers. So let me just put it that way. But, you know, Jara has the best of intentions in mind, right? Wants to change the script. Now, in doing so, you know, sometimes things can get a little dark. You know, when you do what you think you do is right, and maybe that's not exactly right. Now, when it looks like things are about to go bad, Batman steps in. And not in the Batman way you would think. Something very un-Batman-like happens. I mean very un-Batman-like. In this issue with the reaction to it from the other members of the League, priceless. Because it's exactly how I was reacting while I was reading this. It's self-aware, and I love that about the writing in this story. Now, the war might have taken a turn, though, in the, in the ending part of this issue. There's a reveal at the end where you're like, oh, come on, you got to be kidding me. So Lex Luthor being one step ahead, yeah, it might. It, it, this one might be pretty ugly. That's all I'm going to say. It seems like one war after another, though, for the league lately, doesn't it? And it just seems like each one, the odds are impossible, and they find a way. That's what heroes do, right? This one, I, I don't know. This this is tough. You, you kind of think that the heroes are going to win in the end, but... This one, I don't know. It just has a weird feel to it. I'm not exactly sure how they're going to get their way out of this one. As a matter of fact, this this is really like one of those, to use a sports analogy, two teams that everybody knows, every fan knows, even if it's not your team, you know these teams. You know they're the top teams in the league, and they're going head-to-head for control of everything. So this really has the big fight feel, and this issue gets you ready for that. This is like the pregame show for the big fight that's about to happen, and it's got top-notch art. On top of that. So if you're not reading Justice League, yeah, number 29, you're going to want to grab this one for sure. Get the back issues too, especially for this this Legion of Doom and Justice League battle that's brewing. You're going to want to get those back issues, but this one will definitely be helpful for you in the issues ahead. Put this in your pull box right now. I'm definitely doing the same. Here's something that I actually read while I was at Comic-Con. got to read this one a little early, but since it's out this week, I wanted to talk about it. Coffin Bound number one from Image Comics, and that's Dan Waters on the writing. You might remember he was on our show talking about Limbo a few years back. Danny on the art and Brad Simpson on the colors. Now, this follows a woman named Izzy Tyburn who's either having a really bad day or a very lucky day, depending on how you look at it. Now, Someone wants to kill her. Bad, right? Well, she gets a heads up about it. And this is something, and this something never loses that's after her, by the way. This thing that wants to kill her just pretty much kills everything in its path. So in order to keep this from happening, she's trying to keep herself from ever having existed so the trail goes cold. Not in like a time travel kind of way either. That's what's funky about this book. Basically, it's burn everything to the ground and hope for the best. That's basically what she's doing. So she's kind of traveling with a very unusual companion to kind of scorch herself from existence. It sounds crazy, but that's what she wants to do. That's what she thinks is going to make this happen. And by unusual companion, you see this person or this thing, I should say, on the cover. The relationship's kind of interesting, too. If you've read the story, you know what I'm talking about. Now, the thing that's chasing her, I'll go ahead and and reveal that. You get to see this thing's face on the cover as well. And it's called the Earth Eater. And I'm going to tell you right now. First of all, if this thing was chasing me, I'm not sure I would be able to have... I'm not sure I'd have a clean pair of pants ever, quite frankly, because, yikes, this thing is really, really scary. And it might be one of the creepiest and most unsettling creatures I've ever seen in comics, period. And that um, I know that's a big statement to make. 
when you see this Earth Eater thing, man, it is, I don't know, like the Pulp Fiction of your worst nightmares. It's it's not good. It's bad. And then there's Polly Starlight, too, by the way, who's just this psychopathic, all-around creep, just the kind of guy you would always want to avoid at all costs. Let's just put it that way. It's really hard to describe this book without spoiling it. It's really hard to understand it without actually reading it. So, I mean, the best thing I could say is is this book just it feels dirty. It looks dirty and it feels 100% on point on those things. And trust me when I tell you that those are compliments that I just made. I know it doesn't really maybe it doesn't sound like it, but it really really is. It's like this is a grungy deep dive into a just a what seems like it's going to be a blood-soaked story throughout. I know that that was kind of one of the, the the bullet points in the on the Image Comics website for the series, but that's really what it feels like. You you've either got something that's going to destroy you or you have to destroy everything about you so that something doesn't. So either way there's going to be a lot of bodies dropping and a lot of scorched earth along the way it seems like. It's we it this book is just weird with a grindhouse feel of the highest absolute quality. And I don't know why I keep seeing Charlize Theron as Izzy. It's almost like if Charlize Theron and Lindsay Hamilton had a baby and you'd get Izzy Tyburn. That's that's kind of the best. And I'm talking like Linda Hamilton from Terminator. Linda Hamilton, okay? So let, let's just make that clear right now. It's just absolute. This book's insane, and I have to see what happens in the second issue. So throw this one in the pull box as well. Coffinbound, number one from Image Comics. Justice League, number 29 from DC Comics. Couldn't possibly be two more different issues this week that I'm talking about. It's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to talk about Batman Hush, the animated movie version. Going to be a spoiler-filled review next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Davide Bazooz from Gotham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I feel like I've been waiting for this for years, and it is finally here. The Batman Hush animated movie It is finally out. I mean, it's been out on digital, finally out now on Blu-ray. And DVDs not coming out until August the 13th on DC Universe, though, by the way. But I think we're safe here doing a spoiler filled review of the movie. So if you haven't seen it yet, yeah, you're going to want to fast forward ahead just a little bit. I don't want to spoil this for you because trust me, there is a lot to spoil. And again, I'm not going to get into every little plot detail except for the ending. We're going to talk a lot about the ending. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the nuts and bolts of the beginning of the movie, but what we do have here, it's still a very personal story, by the way. This is a di- very different Batman. As you heard Jason O'Mara talk about last week, if you heard the interviews from the show, Jason O'Mara talks about how this is kind of a different Batman, right? And this one is personal, not just because of the relationship with Catwoman and that we kind of see start here and the, you know, the, and the kiss and the, how that throws him off. But the relationship with Thomas Elliot as well and, and, and them being friends and Batman wanting to be a better friend and a better person just in general. And and you get to see that play out throughout this movie. But mostly this is very much so heavy in the in the way of a Batman and Catwoman story. There's a lot of that going on here. The Hush story is also very much a part of this as well. But a lot of this too is the Batman and Catwoman relationship and see how that evolves and then eventually towards the end devolves as well. We kind of get to see how that falls apart 
after what happens. And it's, it's just a very interesting rise and fall about how this gets carried out. Now I know you're the, the comic was one of my favorites as well. It's, it might be my favorite Batman story. I mean, if you really had to, if you really pressed me on it, I think Batman hush would be my answer from my favorite Batman story. I I've just always loved it. So there's that fine line, right, of wanting to see the thing that you love adapted on the screen the way you remember it and and something different being done with it. And there is definitely plenty of different in this animated movie. One thing that I do hate that they had to cut out of this was a lot of the backstory between Thomas Elliot and Bruce Wayne. We don't get really any of that in this movie. So if there was one bummer about this, for me, that would be it. But what we do get is we do get some big moments from the comic, that alley scene between Batman and Joker. Yeah, we get that. And I mean, we get a really good bit of that. And it's uncomfortable to watch, just like it was uncomfortable in the comic, too. It was just, it was brutal. And and Commissioner Gordon, the role that he plays in that scene as well, that, that, was, that was the bright spot for Commissioner Gordon. Other than Killing Joke... I don't think that Gordon has played a more important role in a DC movie in such a short amount of time than he did. It, well, I say DC movie, I mean DC animated movie. I don't want you to think I'm going to the the live action movies here because you'll you'll kill me on that with all these different tweets about how he was more important here. Anyway, I'm talking about the animated movies now. So he just played a huge role in that scene, and it, without and without him, it wouldn't have been as effective. You know, going back to the comics, so. The other bummer is we we had we didn't have Oracle, so that was a little bit of a bummer. About Batgirl gets gets a nice little piece of this story, but we also get the scene with Superman and Poison Ivy. We get we get that, and I think that that was done really really well. We you get to have Harley has her big moment, so you get that in there as well. But I and there were a lot of things that were done right, but I I'm gonna spend most of this talking about the the twist and how this thing ends because you know of course you know the big reveal in the book is that you know spoiler alert if you haven't read the book or seen the movie Thomas Elliot is hush right that that is the whole point that's why the story is so personal and that's why you have the backstory between he and Bruce Wayne so as I'm going through watching this movie for the first time at Comic-Con I'm going where is all the backstory between Thomas Elliot and Bruce Wayne, how are we supposed to make that connection that Thomas Elliot is hush, right? Or maybe that's the point. Maybe they don't want viewers to make that connection. But here's what ends up happening. And this is the number one biggest spoiler of this movie. So if you don't want to know what it is, this is the time to fast forward. The Riddler is hush. Edward Nigma is revealed as hush at the end of this movie. And that is the big spoiler of this entire thing. Now, here's the deal. It makes sense. I will say that much. They build this up and it makes sense. And it's basically how much Riddler wants to be taken seriously. How he's never taken seriously by Batman, or really anyone else for that matter, but specifically Batman. He just wants Batman to feel that he is not only on his level, but beyond his level. And that's why he's always one step ahead. And that's the thing about Hush, right? Always one, two, three steps ahead of Batman. That what's That's one of the things that makes Hush so awesome. So there is still a connection there. 
But at the same time, it, and I said this to a couple people after the movie as I was watching, I was like, you know what? If I'd never read the comic before, I would think that this was a great great movie that's a great twist at the end that i did i definitely didn't see coming because i knew the comic story but i still wouldn't have seen coming if i hadn't read the comic because while there might have been subtle hints there and it's something you might have been able to pick up on there was no there was no premise for it and there was no reason to think that riddler was a suspect in any of this really and you find out why Riddler is ends up by the way another spoiler is that Riddler ends up killing Thomas Elliot so when you see Tommy Elliot die in that alley he's dead he is dead he is not alive and we get to see that play out in the final scene of the reveal of Hush too by the way which is which is one of the things that just pushes Batman almost over the edge too by the way so you get to see that play out and as you get this reveal of it being Riddler and you felt like something wasn't right if you read the comic, it would have been really easy to get mad about not sticking to that story. But at the same time, you think to yourself, okay, so if it's revealed as Thomas Elliot, there's really no effect of that because that's what you're expecting. So whether you're a reader of the comic or not, this was something that you were not going to see coming, period. You were not going to see Riddler be revealed as Hush either way. You would not have seen that ahead of time. I don't think so anyway. So while I was upset, at, at, I, when it first happened, I was upset. I'll be honest. I, I was like, how can you rob me of the joy of seeing this moment where Batman finds out that his best friend as a child is now one of his worst enemies ever and did all of these things to him? How could you not do that but then at the same time i'm like i've seen that version maybe it's time to get a new version of this and that was the twist that they made there were still plenty of beats from the comic in there it's not like everything was left out there was still plenty to go on and and obviously the catwoman thing was a big part of that and then you had other changes that they made you know adding in damien make it still making nightwing a big part of the story. And, and that was where some of the humor came in, where he was kind of jabbing at Batman over his relationship with Catwoman and seeing Catwoman in the Batcave for the first time. There was a lot of entertainment value in that stuff. So you still get some of the stuff, albeit in a different way from the comic. And then you get these new items as well, especially adding Damien in. You get this new stuff that you're not really expecting. And it does add to your enjoyment of it. And it's not like the comic is never there. And I know, I get it, okay? If you're still upset, if you're still a hush purist, Batman hush purist, you're still upset about the way the movie went about it, all right, I get it. I understand if you're still upset about that and can't let it go. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't be mad because I certainly was in the beginning. But when I, when I took a second to think about it, I was like, so now I have two different versions of this story that I can go back and reference. And again, if I'd never read the comic before, this is a great movie from start to finish. Great ending, especially how, again, when we get to see, this is another major spoiler, and that when Catwoman decides, Batman's trying to save Riddler at this point. After everything, you know how Batman is. Nobody dies, right? He tries to save everybody. So Catwoman thinks that they're both going to die, says, screw it, cuts the line, and Riddler dies. And that's where that relationship between the two of them fractures, right? 
and he and she kind of sees that he's always going to be this way where everybody has to be saved even if it someday costs him his life and she can't accept that she can't be a part of that so she walks away and that's how their sort of relationship ends for now and 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 that and that is we certainly get that okay so we 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 get that part of the story there there's so many other things to love about this movie beyond what we see in the comics. So I'm not sure why these two things can't all can exist in greatness together. I know that because the Batman hush name is on there, that there's going to be that comparison, that stigma attached to it. You're always going to love the Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee story. And I know I certainly will, but now I have the, well, what if, and this was actually said by one of the, one of the, I think it was the director or the writer during the interviews. And I, and looking back, it's like, I should have picked up on that where they say, what if we tweaked one thing and made it a, and made the story a little bit different. And they did, they tweaked one thing, albeit a major thing. And it made the story completely different, completely unique and absolutely still a great, great story. So even though it didn't go as planned as I, exactly as I thought it was going to, Batman Hush was still a winner. You're still going to want to see it. If you've already seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Plus, you've also got Sergeant Rock on there too, by the way. that The, the extra, the DC Showcase extra. It's on there, Car- Carl Urban, the Sergeant Rock. Yeah, you're going to want to do that. Plus, I mean, so many great performances by all the cast the voice cast in this movie. I mean, you've got another great performance from Jason O'Mara. You've got Maury Sterling, who did a great job as Thomas Elliott and Hush, even though they, that reveal wasn't there. And, uh, I mean, Jeffrey Aaron as Riddler. I mean, come on. Next level good. I mean, not just in the end, but but throughout. And, and as a Riddler fan, I love the Riddler so much. I really hope we, even though, you know, Riddler dies, at some point, I hope we get to see him back as Riddler in another story because he did such a great job with the character. I really, really hope this isn't the end of that, even though it looks pretty. It looked pretty much at the end at the end of the movie, so we'll have to see what happens there. But definitely watch Batman Hush if you haven't already. You probably have. You probably already have your Blu-ray or your DVD in your hand right now, or you're like, I'm, I can't wait to watch it again on DC Universe because. Love the comic, read the comic or not, it was still a great story. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Sometimes my days can be really long. I mean, working on the show, taking care of my kids, or even out at a con all day. So I tried Mac Weldon because I needed something that would keep me looking good, but also feeling good. As a matter of fact, I love my silver XT2 boxer briefs. They kept me cool, and they have natural anti-odor technology. Definitely the best thing I order. As a matter of fact, After mowing the lawn in the Virginia heat here, I was still good to go. I'm still wearing them. That's how good they are. And if you don't like the first pair, you can keep it and still get your money back. I also love the silver knit polo I ordered because Mack Weldon believes in smart design and premium fabrics. Find out for yourself. Go to MacWeldon.com and enter promo code DNPOD at checkout for 20% off your first order. The website makes things quick and easy to get exactly what you want. And I actually kept getting... A better deal every time I added something to my cart, which I wasn't expecting. It was so great. So, guys, 
Next time you're spending all day at a con or just trying to look good while staying active, experience the difference that Mack Weldon can make. That's M-A-C-K-Weldon.com and promo code D-N-P-O-D for 20% off your first order. Be nerdy and look smart in Mack Weldon. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Batman Hush movie. Up next, got some serious nerd news to talk about and could Disney finally be taking down Netflix? We'll get into that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Wynn Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Someday we will look back at this as the start of the streaming wars. It's time for nerd news, and maybe war is not the right word for it because it might be over before it's even really started. And I'll tell you why. Because Disney Plus, Disney actually announced this week that there will be a Disney Plus bundle. And listen to this, because it's almost not even fair. So Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus will all be available for $12.99 a month. Not each. That's bundled together. Bob Iger, during the investor call, was mostly talking about how great Disney Plus is going to be and how it's the most important thing that they've worked on and so on and so forth. And you have to understand why that's absolutely true from Disney's perspective because this is them taking control of their own properties, which is something that they like to do anyway. You know, they're, this is the company that would put their movies in a vault and say, you can't buy our things until we tell you we can buy you can buy our things. And when we bring it back, you're going to keep rebuying it because we're going to add something to it and we know that you're going to. Disney knows what they have. So they are doing this because, again, they know what they have. They know they have Hulu. They know they have ESPN. And they know they have the ability to create great programming that they are going to house on their own Disney Plus service. It's also going to have all the great things that you liked about Disney in the first place. So let's step away from this for just a second. Because I've seen on social media, as I'm scrolling through Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, it's the, how is Netflix going to compete with this? How is HBO Max going to complete with it, compete with this? And so on and so forth. But let's take the Netflix examples because, and this is just me talking, my opinion. Netflix, I think, knows they can't compete with this. There's no way they can compete with this. How do you compete with Disney? Think about the revenue streams just for a second. Disney has revenue streams in their theme parks, in merchandising, in home video releases, in their theatrical releases, television networks, merchandising. I might have already mentioned that. The list goes on and on and on and on and on, right? So, and then you look at Netflix. What does Netflix have? They have their streaming service. They have some home video. They have some merchandising. That's it. That's really where it ends for them because A, they're still relatively new, believe it or not, but in the grand scheme of things, certainly compared to Disney, they don't have as wide of a reach as Disney does. They don't have the revenue stream that Disney does. Disney can take a wash on X-Men Dark Phoenix, take a huge loss on that and not feel a thing from it. When Netflix takes a loss on something... You feel that loss. And Netflix kind of also did this to themselves. And I've talked about this on the show before, but it bears repeating given this price point. Netflix shot their shot and went way overboard with original programming and movies and all of these things. Once they realized how much people were loving these things, 
they overdid it a little bit to the point now where you're seeing stuff like the OA get canceled. You're seeing a whole bunch of shows just sort of go away because they know they've they've done too much in a manner of speaking. And that's why I was kind of wondering about the whole Sandman series thing and how expensive that's going to be. And it's, you know, part of that maybe is Warner Brothers, you know, covering some of the cost of that production. So maybe it's not going to be as heavy on Netflix, but they don't have these other things to keep them afloat is what I'm trying to say is that they don't have the ability that Disney does to fall back on something else to make up for that money because Disney's always going to make money in something that they're doing. And when they're not, like the video games, for example, you know, Amiibos, stuff like that, once that stuff starts stops making money, they're done with it. They just flush it. And they can do that because of the other revenue streams that they have. Netflix doesn't have that fallback. They don't have that thing they, they can do where you can go, oh, well, it doesn't matter because we've still got this. So we're okay. We can just go do something else. No, no, no. Netflix doesn't have that. So you have to keep that in mind and that they can't compete with that. Now, that is something that Warner Media can do with HBO Max because they do have other things. So I don't know that they will be able to justify that higher price point. The only If that is the higher price point, we don't even know for sure what the price point is. But if they try to justify a price that's higher than this bundle price, you better come out with a good reason. That's the other thing that you have to consider, too. If you're going to have a price higher than $12.99 for three things for your one thing, you better tell me why. And maybe that won't be the case. Maybe it'll be that high because they're going to bundle stuff like DC Universe and HBO and other things into one umbrella. And then you can go, okay, well, maybe it will be worth paying whatever that price is going to be. So I don't know. This bundle seems too good to pass up for me. I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, having Hulu, ESPN Plus, and Disney Plus for $12.99, yeah, this is definitely a shut up and take my money type of situation. Speaking of Marvel a little bit, since we're talking about Disney Plus, ABC, according to Deadline, is looking to add a female-led Marvel series to replace Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., This is not a repeat story that I'm telling you, by the way. This is something that is, quote, nearly brand new. I don't know about you, but... And I posted an article about this in downandnerdypodcast.com. Haven't we kind of heard this story before? I mean, think about it. Especially from ABC, not even just from Marvel specifically. We had... Remember, ABC had a chance to have Jessica Jones. They passed on it. They also had that female superhero team series that they were supposed to be doing, right? And passed on that. You can even take it outside of Marvel. Remember the Greatest American Hero reboot with Hannah Simone? Also not picked up by ABC. And I don't know if that's a huge coincidence or if there's a pattern here. Because it just seems like the female-led thing not really work. I mean, not now I know they had Agent Carter. Don't at me about Agent Carter. I loved Agent Carter. It seemed like everybody did. But they gave up on it after two seasons. That is a show that absolutely could have kept going. Critics loved it. Fans seemed to love it. I mean, the ratings weren't knocked down, drag out great, but they haven't been for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. all the time either. But that show keeps surviving because fans love it. Why didn't Agent Carter do the same thing? Now, maybe ABC has learned from this, this mistake and they're realizing, okay, we need to stop doing this. This is a pattern that we need to end because we do have Stumptown with Kobe Smulders that's going to be coming up. It's based on the Oni Press series from Greg Rucka. We also have Emergence, which ABC rescued from NBC when they passed on it too, which also has a female lead. So that's a couple of big, strong female-led 
you know, in the genre dramas that they've got coming up. So it's possible that, yes, they are learning from this, but still, I, my caution bulb was lit to whether or not we'll ever see the, this will ever see the light of day. And I think it's a little bit too early, too, to even speculate on who this could be. Let's Let's find out that it's actually happening first before we can start talking about who it might be. But I, if you're thinking like Miss Marvel or Ghost Spider, th- those are going to the MCU, guys. I'm sorry. I, I know. Or even for, for Ghost Spider anyway, maybe Sony. Those are going to the big screen, guys. They know what they have in Miss Marvel and Ghost Spider. They're not going to put Spider-Gwen on the small screen when they can use the big screen. Come on. You, you know that that's how that's going to go down. Speaking of new female-led series, well, one of them is kind of female-led. We've got a couple of trailers to talk about. Finally got a full trailer, by the way, for Carnival Row. We've been teased forever. Now we've got a bit of a full trailer. Now I'm not going to break down every single aspect of this trailer, but there's so much about Carnival Row that is just so fascinating. You've got the refugee story in there. You've also got that forbidden love story between Vignette and Philo. You've also got... The whole, you know, are they going to be accepted? Are the creatures going to be accepted by the humans? And you've got this war that's going on, this crisis that's making people, making these creatures go into this human area of Carnival Row. So, and and that's clearly a problem. Now, what I think about this, what I think about this trailer is, is that the one thing you've got to ask is why during whatever happened with Philo when when Vignette thought he died, why did he not go back to her? That's one of the things that we have to find out. That's one of the mysteries, I think, in this trailer. We've also found out that something's taking creatures and killing them. It's not just, you know, this push and pull between creatures and humans and being accepted or not being accepted. Something that is not creature or not fae, as they call them, or human is taking people and just killing them. So... And you get a little bit of a glimpse of an eye. If you actually go to downandnerdypodcast.com and find the article I posted on this trailer, there's new promo art. And there's something lurking in the background that's this gigantic, like, hellish creature. And it made me realize just how big the scope is going to be for Carnival Row. There's just so much to be excited about, about this series. Not just because you've got Orlando Bloom and Cara Delevingne working on this, who are two fantastic actors. But because of the world that's being created here, you've got this Victorian, neo-Victorian type of vibe that I've just loved from the very, very start. And then you throw in all these different aspects of the story into this. I'm so all in on Carnival Row. Labor Day weekend, August the 30th, Amazon Prime Video. Yeah, I'm going to be watching, probably staying up all night to finish the darn thing, if I'm being honest. The other trailer that dropped today, finally got an extended look at Katie Keene from The CW, the Riverdale spinoff. So it's basically, you know, trying to make it in the big city. If you want to really put it down to nuts and bolts, and you've got Katie, you've got Jorge, Josie, yes, from Josie and the Pussycats. I love the fact that she's in this show. You've got Pepper as well. And there's different aspects of making it. You've got Katie with her fashion, Jorge trying to make it on Broadway. You've got Josie in the music and... It's all these reasons as to, you know, all the struggles that happen, all the things, all the obstacles that can be put in your way. And it's because each of these characters in their own way don't fall into the norm. They don't fit into this little box that society thinks they need to fit into 
in order to be able to do the things that they want to do. And actually, as I was getting ready, getting ready to watch this trailer, and I'm like, I got to talk about this on the show this week, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a guy. How am I going to figure out how to relate to this and, and talk about this without sounding like I don't know what I'm talking about? And that's where it lies, right? The fact that if you're someone that doesn't fit inside this little box that society has you in and you want to accomplish great things, what do you have to do to accomplish those but still be yourself? and do your thing. That is where we, you know, you can relate to that. You don't have to be in a city of 8 million people to be able to relate to something like that, right? And I think that that is one of the keys to this Katie Keene series, not just, you know, the grandeur of the big city and trying to make it in all these aspects. And there's some comedy that's going to be involved and plenty of drama. And of course, there's going to be relationship drama stuff there too. There's a little something for everybody, I think, if you're interested in how to make it in entertainment, or just how to make it in general if you're not quote-unquote normal. If you don't fit into that mold, I think you'll find something very relatable in this Katie Keene series. That's not coming until 2020, by the way, though, so you'll have to put that on the back burner for now. I can't wait to see if Katie Keene can live up to these expectations. Finally, really quick, I want to talk about Andy Serkis being chosen as the director of Venom 2, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Now, if you're thinking, Andy Serkis, where do I know that name? He's basically the CG motion capture genius actor. I mean, you're talking about the New Planet of the Apes movies. You're talking about, you know, so many other great roles in Lord of the Rings. And I could go on and I just go to his IMDb page. You'll be stunned at all the stuff that Andy Serkis has been in. Yes, he has directed before. This will be the third time that he's directing, and this one for Venom 2. And the reason why I think he's a really good choice is because think about what you're getting. You've got Venom, but you also it looks like we're also going to have Carnage in this movie, if you remember the, the stinger from the first Venom movie, the, the end credits scene there. So you, there are these subtleties in the CG that I actually think that they did a pretty good job with in the first Venom movie. But to take Venom up a notch, you need somebody like Andy Serkis who's just immersing himself in these motion capture roles in order to get these just little subtle like head turns and expressions and movements. And sometimes when you're stuck in the symbiote, that's what you need to have. You need to have that ability to do that. And a lot of this, what made Venom successful was Tom Hardy and his portrayal outside of being Venom, right? So I understand that. But once you get to the whole Carnage stuff and you get to the, especially like any battles between Carnage and Venom, you need to have perfection in that CG and motion capture. And I can't think of a better person to put on that than Andy Serkis. This is a guy who's been there, done that, in some of the biggest movies and productions ever, especially since CG has come to the forefront. So if you're going to be doing that, you're going to go heavy into that, you need a guy like Andy Serkis on your side. And it looks like Marvel and Sony have just that. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, time to talk to the cast and producers of Epic's Pennyworth series. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Robin Lord Taylor from Gotham, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hopefully you've had a chance to watch Pennyworth already, the Batman prequel series that is on Epic's, and you know how good it is. 
if you've seen it already. So let's hear from some of the cast and the creators of the show all about it, actually. And let's start with Alfred Pennyworth himself, Jack Bannon. And the first question for him was, what's it like playing Alfred Pennyworth, one of the biggest supporting characters in comic book history? It's strange because obviously it's we've always seen him kind of stiff upper lip, straight guy, and this... This Alfred's got swag, you know. He's, he's, Bruno's script was great, and and that was my bible. I started with that, and he had some great ideas. Um, and we sat down and spoke about, you know, the great thing about when it, when it's a first season like this, you're creating a whole world. So it's it's 1960s London, yes, but it's a DC 60s London. It's 13 degrees weirder and darker and, and macabre and strange. Um, but also we're we're creating you know the look, the clothes, the physicality, the sound, so the the accent you know was a nod to Michael Caine because he's the one who came up with the SAS background, that, like or, or pushed it properly in the Nolan film. So um, yeah, it, it's been a blast, really filling in, filling in the gaps. Next question for Jack was, a lot of other actors have played Alfred in the past, and how do you hope to leave your mark? I just want people to watch it, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know about leaving a mark, but it's a daunting a daunting list to join, for sure. But um, the way I processed it in my head, I was like, you're fine, you're fine. Because even though they shot all their stuff years before, and it's been on and people have loved it, technically... You're before them, so they're following me, not I'm following them. That's how I do it, my head, which uh, makes no sense, but that enabled me to go to work without, you know, losing my mind. And finally, Jack Bannon was asked, how's the interaction between Alfred and Thomas Wayne? It's a, it's a by-chance meeting, really, that throws them together. Um, Thomas's sister is in the nightclub where Alfred works, and he comes to get her. So the exciting thing is... Maybe asking the question of what if that didn't happen? You know, none of this whole thing would have happened. But um, <laughs> there he is. Um, but their relationship in 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 the, in the first season, you know, they're 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 not mates really. Um, Alfred doesn't really like him to begin with. Um, but they're thrown they're, they're kind of thrown together. I always saw it as like two tigers circling each other. There's a mutual intrigue. They they're scoping each other out. Um, and you know, Alfred. Tom, they both possess something that the other needs. So, uh, so Thomas has money and, and status and all these things that Alfred, as a lowly doorman or bouncer at this time, needs to get his business off the ground and get away from that. And Ben hates it when I say this, but Thomas is a wimp, so <laughs> he needs Alfred's army skills to uh, to save the day, really. So, as much as they're trying to get away from each other, they're constantly drawn back together. But Alfred does have a, a respect for him, you know, when, when shit hits the fan, per se, um, you know, he, he's, a, he's also a very moral guy, and, and that's something they share. Next up is Paloma Faith, who plays a brand new character this, to the series, Bet Sykes. And the first question for her was, what's it like playing the villain? Well, I was excited by playing a villain because I think to be a good actress, you have to have a lot of empathy and... I don't really like villains when they're just like straight up nasty because I just think it's a bit one dimensional and I don't think that's very realistic um, I think that I have a lot of similar feelings to the character that I played I just don't 
necessarily respond to them in the same way. I just don't stab people to death because of my feelings. <laughs> The next question for Paloma was, how do you define your character and being new in the DC Universe? I think what's, what's brilliant about um, the DC Universe and the history of the films that have come before, and this is, we have treated this like a film, it's not really a TV show, um, it's just a really long film. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, what's interesting about them is that Really, they delve into subjects and themes that affect all of us. It's all about the human condition and about um, psychology and our misplaced feeling in the universe, almost. And I think, as a female character, particularly, what was important to me was, number one, I didn't want to be the main thing that people feared about me to be their desire, because I think that women have a lot more going for them than sex. I mean, we're great at that as well, but, <laughs> but it's not our only thing. <laughs> um, and I think that um, I had a sort of very clear interpretation of Bruno Heller's writing. I sort of felt like I knew this person, like I, I had references. I don't have my own accent in it, I have an accent from the north of England, it's different. Um, and I sort of had it just in my mind that I wanted to play with what makes us the same as human beings and not sort of emphasise a gender divide. I think her motivations, uh, there's often parallels between her motivation and Alfred Pennyworth's motivation, even though that he's considered a good guy and she's considered a bad person. And I wanted to play with that idea that sometimes they were confused, like how did we both end up fighting for the same thing when we're supposed to like not agree? And I think socio-politically that's like important, you know, when we deal with subjects of class, race, gender divide, that's what's often, you know, when people get confused when they have extreme opposing ideas and then they're like, hang on, the inherent thing underneath it all is we're all human beings and we have the same desires and we have, you know, the same needs for human connection and I feel like that's what I wanted to put into this villain. She's deep. <laughs> So if you've seen Pennyworth on Epics already, you already know who she's working for. But the question was, how does she end up working for those people? She's a working class woman. She has a sister. And um, she's a little bit of a liability. She's like me. She's got a bit of a short attention span. And she feels frustrated by the norm, the everyday. And she's sort of found a place to put her talents into working for an extreme far-right political group, um, which is kind of part of a weird sort of underbelly of civil war that's happening in London. So I think it's kind of very uh, reflective of the current political climate in Britain and America, that there is kind of like this weird 50-50 thing of like good and evil and everyone butting heads with Trump, Brexit, all of that is happening in the show but kind of replicated. 
Next up was executive producer of Pennyworth, Danny Cannon. The first question for him was, what made Alfred's story a story that you wanted to tell? Well, I think, well, well, you know, there are a lot of characters we could have considered, but, I mean, Pennyworth was somebody who had zero backstory. And many times he's been portrayed as just this stiff kind of butler. It was really Michael Caine, when he worked with um, on, on, on those movies, those brilliant movies, who gave himself a... Um, military background. That made total sense to me because this was a guy who was eventually going to mentor Bruce Wayne and we did that in Gotham. The idea that he's not just mentoring him into a man and giving him advice, he's physically helping the guy. So this is a guy with a lot of experience and so we wanted to go back and say where did that experience and that maturity come from? And why would somebody at the very beginning of the story go I'll never be a butler dad, forget that, when we know he will. What? What's going to happen to this guy? What journey will he, will he go on to fulfill that destiny, and why? So that got us talking, and it was it was a, and then coupled with the fact that we could, for the first time ever, create a DC style 1960s England, was just like yeah, that's it. Next question for Danny Cannon was: Was there anything that you were inspired by within the DC universe, even though the show does stand on its own? I, I you don't know until you're writing a scene, or until you're directing a scene, or until you see somebody actually performing a scene what your influences have been I've read so much of that stuff and I, you know if I grew up with that stuff I've watched everything I'm, I'm like nerd number one here so it's you don't realise what you've what, what you've been inspired by until you actually see it there's a couple of scenes within that uh, that along with Michael Caine or along with John Barry or along with uh, great British designers of, of that time there is a comic book image that you've set up one day and you're like, oh my God, now I remember that frame, but I didn't know it until that moment. So it's nice when that happens. So I asked Danny Cannon, how important was it to give fans an insight into Alfred's family life? How important was it for you to kind of give us an insight into Alfred's family life? Because we get a lot of that. Oh yeah. Well, I think drama doesn't do that enough. And, and, and Bruno, I think, really had a good take on the parents. A, because, you know, we'd spoken so much about um, uh, why wouldn't uh, Alfred want to be a butler. His father had to be a butler. You know, he had to be able to talk to him in a, in a way. And there's a great moment in episode 10, without giving too much away, where you see them together in butler attire. You know, and it's, it was really kind of a special moment because um, nothing says class system more like a butler. <laughs> Not many people have butlers. Do you know what I mean? And butlers were working class men who um, spent their whole lives 24-7 assisting, helping, and uh, keeping the image up of um, privileged families. And that's, we know that's what Alfred's going to end up doing. So watching him resist that as much as he can, but deep down it's in his DNA, I think that we had a lot of fun with that. Next to talk to us about Pennyworth was Ben Aldridge, who plays Thomas Wayne on the show. The first question for him was, how does it feel to have already played Thomas Wayne on screen more than any other actor combined? Yeah, that's been a really fun part of it, actually, is to kind of, we know where he ends up. 
but we just know what, we don't know where he begins at all. And I think in the comic books we see that he, when Alfred obviously tells Bruce about him, that we just see that he's very moral and um, uh, a do-gooder and an upright citizen. So we know that he ends up as this principled moral character, but like he's, he, we're looking at him, Pennyworth, his journey of how he gets there. And something that Bruno's been really good at as, as a writer, and, and I think that's very uh, a big part of Pennyworth, is that you can't necessarily always tell the difference between our heroes and our villains there's a lot of grey space in between them there's not, they're not that black and white um, and it would have been boring to have just played Thomas as this like, kind of super intelligent do-gooder but he, he's thrust in some quite kind of morally compromising uh, situations throughout our series and I know in the comic books he's, he works in medicine in, in Pennyworth he's caught up in this kind of like world of this very covert world of espionage and underground intelligence and he's forced into a world of violence that he's not very comfortable with being a part of. Next up, Ben Aldridge was asked, what's the most interesting thing for you about playing this character so far? What's been the most interesting and exciting is being that me and Emma, the, oh, that me and Martha Wayne, we know that our DNA goes into Batman. So it's kind of been like knowing the, the moral side of, of Thomas ends up being the moral side of Bruce and the unexpected violent side of, of Bruce we actually get to see in Thomas as well so I think that, I think that just to be remembered as the, the DNA that then becomes Batman Batman's dad Bat daddy <laughs> there we go we heard Jack Bannon talk about her earlier now it's Ben Aldridge's turn to talk about the relationship between Thomas and Alfred it's not like Starsky and Hutch it's not um, it's not buddy buddy they they need something from each other or definitely Thomas needs something from Alfred so as I said he's this fish out of water in London and he's working in this slightly dangerous world and he needs protection and he needs Alfred's smart and streetwise know-how to kind of navigate his way through this dangerous landscape Alfred isn't very interested in Thomas but Thomas sees him as a great asset and wants to try and involve him in his work and it's and it's kind of Thomas stalking um, Alfred and trying to get him to come and work for him and he does that in various different ways but Alfred's quite reluctant he's quite suspicious of Thomas and and, and, he, and rightly really because I think the, along with the audience uh, the character, the other characters in the show don't quite know who Thomas is or who he's working for or whether he's good or whether he's bad so this, they're quite wary of each other they're like kind of two sharks circling each other basically um, but I'm, being, I'm interested to see when the friendship begins because you get tiny elements of, of that throughout this first series but it's mostly them trying to work each other out sizing each other up, scoping each other out so yeah Speaking of relationships, kind of an important one. When we see him meet Martha, was it going to be love at first sight or something else? That's that's not uh, instant attraction at all. Um, they don't agree on much and they don't really like each other. <laughs> They're forced to work together. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, more, it's more about repulsion than, than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we start to see the sparks of chemistry between them. And they're both very high-minded. They're both very intelligent. So they're like these sparring partners. Um, and Thomas is, like, becoming a bit more cynical. And she's very, very ideal. So he just gets frustrated by her being this kind of wide-eyed... 
um, idealist and, and he's like trying to educate her a little bit she's a bit more maverick than he is um, he's quite kind of like he's kind of he wants to play by the rules where she was a bit Wilder, but yeah. So I think if you're a true Batman fan, you know how much of a badass Alfred Pennyworth is and was, but I'm really loving the fact that this series is really taking a deep dive, not just into the character of Alfred and Thomas Wayne, but like they were saying, the espionage role of it in the Civil War that's going on in Britain, and there's so many moving parts in this show, and there's political intrigue. This show is kind of one of those shows that sort of has it all and yeah you 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 can love it if you're a batman fan but even if you're not a batman fan you can love it as well so make sure you're watching pennyworth every sunday night at 9 p.m on epics you can also watch on epics now their app on the website plenty of ways that you can watch pennyworth and you should be because it's a great show that's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast again thanks to warner brothers and dc for letting me be a part of the pennyworth press room at san diego comic-con i had a little audio trouble there by the way thanks to josh and manny for helping me out with that i appreciate it guys and if you want more from us on the show let me know down and nerdy that's best way to find everything you can also find out more about our sponsor for this week Mac Weldon. Make sure you go to MacWeldon.com. Use promo code DNPOD. Get 20% off your first order. You won't be sorry about that. Follow us on social media as well, at DownandNerdy757 on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook.com slash DownandNerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.